Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. It feels to me like we as a church are sitting upon gunpowder, just waiting for a spark. And I'm not unaware of our weaknesses. I think I contribute three-fourths of them just as an individual. But, but that being said, the love that God himself has worked one for another, the great depth of biblical knowledge, the enthusiasm for God's work outside these walls, among our neighbors and in the world, missions, a high view of God, a high view of his word. All of these things make me feel like I'm reading a biography of a person who later in life becomes broadly popular or useful. And when you read the early years of that biography, you can trace a line from those experiences at first that seemed insignificant straight to great usefulness later. But the subject of the biography never knows it because he doesn't get to read later in the story. And who knows, but that's what we're reading in this church now. Restless as we may be for usefulness later, we do have to add that it's good we're not there yet. It's good for us to be actually right where we are right now. The preacher said, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to break down and a time to build up. And you know that buildings go up highest when the foundations are set most deeply, but that simply takes time. God's pleased to save, to save the loss, and I am trusting that a day is coming when he will save many lost persons through you here in this fellowship. Already we see cracks in the dam and you see a trickling in. You can look around and see some who have come to Christ just recently. You see a trickling in. And who knows, but the dam may burst at some point. But it's good for us that it hasn't burst yet. It's good for us to be right where we are. Why is that? Why not the excitement right now? We have needed suffering. And suffering takes time. We have needed trial. And trial takes time. How do you know if you have the grit by God's grace to persevere if you don't suffer for a prolonged period of time? And so you need a prolonged period of trial to grow. We've had to dig a long time in the mines to unearth the rare drool of Christian contentment. You don't get it when everyone around you is smiling and shaking your hand. Spurgeon, as I mentioned him before, once said that he could fit all the growth he did in the sunny seasons of his life on the top side of a penny. God has given us here at Faith Bible Church the rich, dark soil of his word. It's very rich. He has given us as well the sunlight of his spirit who is obviously at work among us. He's given us the rain from on high of his favor and his blessing. 
Everything is here, but you know that when you plant a seed, it's not grown the next day. It takes time. Rome wasn't built in a day. No seed sprouted and grew full grown in a day. The farmer has to be patient and to wait for all the ingredients to mix and to grow. You remember in the Old Testament when the Babylonian exiles returned to their land after it's been devastated and their temple destroyed? When they came back, the temple began to be rebuilt under Zerubbabel. But those who were older, who could remember seven years bef- 70 years before when the first temple stood and saw the beginnings of the smaller new temple, they began to weep. Things were not as glorious as they were before. They were in a period that would be a very long period of less glory. But for them, the prophet Zechariah received this word, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. We should not despise the day of small things. But even those who do shall rejoice. And in their case, it was why? Because that temple being built, which looked so small, would be developed under Herod later so that even in an earthly sense, it would become greater than Solomon's. The complex of the temple would expand. It would take hundreds of years. It's not even a setting on a microwave for hundreds of years. But they would have to wait hundreds of years. And yet, that temple would be, even in an earthly sense, rebuilt greater than it was before. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? God said through one of the prophets to those who labored under Zerubbabel. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? But then the prophet added this promise. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. But it took time. And if it took time, it required patience. That is how God always works. We will see today that is how God worked in the life of the great apostle Paul, apostle to the Gentiles, one of the greatest men who ever lived upon our earth with the broadest usefulness of any who've ever lived. But it was not always this way. There was for Paul a period of three years in Arabia where he did we know not what. (laughs) And then more years after that before any of the great missionary journeys we read of in the book of Acts. So let's see this recounted for us in Galatians chapter 1 by Paul himself beginning in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. It is very good for us that Paul, upon his conversion, was not thrust into a glorious, broad ministry, 
There was no celebrity status for him at first. In this first part of this letter, what Paul is trying to do, if you remember, is prove a statement that he made in verses 11 and 12. He said, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel is our gospel. It matters to us that his gospel was not something he merely borrowed from others and adapted. He's making the claim that his gospel came from a direct revelation of Jesus Christ himself to him, which happened first on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And he has been defending that statement that his gospel is heavenly already in this way, we saw last time, a few weeks back, by saying, if it's not directly from Christ, how do you explain the fact that in my former life I hated Christianity and tried to crush it? And now I am its chief advocate. It had to be Jesus himself interposing. That's one argument in favor of a heavenly gospel. We're now moving on to another. That's where we are right now. A continued prolonged argument to prove that Paul's gospel is from heaven. Because it seems that the Judaizers, and we'll see much of them later, these false Jewish Christian teachers who are coming to converts and saying, you can't be a Christian, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised and keep the Mosaic law. It seems that they were trying to discredit Paul by claiming that once he was converted, he went right up to Jerusalem to the Christian apostles, learned their gospel, then adapted it. And that's the explanation for his message. Paul is saying, no. I received my gospel from Jesus himself. How else do you explain my changed life? And here he's going to continue that argument by pointing out that his gospel is something that God had planned for him and that once he received it directly from Jesus, he didn't even go up to Jerusalem. He didn't consult with anyone. He went far away into a land that we'll see called Arabia for three years. That leads us to see not only this argument from Paul, but also to see in him an example because the way God worked in Paul's life, a way that we often overlook, is the way that God works in your life. You are not an apostle, not in the way that Paul was. You were not converted and then immediately commissioned to receive a direct revelation from Jesus of a gospel not yet proclaimed and take that out to the Gentiles and let them know they are also part, full part of the body of Christ. That's not your task. That was Paul's task. But every single one of you who are in Christ have been commissioned with a specific ministry. You have a gift or gifts given by the Spirit and you are, by God's intention, meant to use those gifts in a certain way. If you're not doing it, the body suffers. And what we see in the life of Paul, I guarantee we see in your life too. Every one of us would love right out the gate of coming to Christ to be as useful, broadly, and explosive as it is possible to be in the use of our gifts. But God gives a time in Arabia first. He did it for Paul. He does it for us to prepare every person for usefulness, to do what Jesus said in pruning cutting off parts that shouldn't be there, painful as it is, so that we may bear more fruit. So what we're going to see today then is this Arabian period. 
this waiting period. We're first going to look at how long God waited before commissioning Paul, and then we're going to look at how long Paul had to wait. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's begin this message by looking at how long God was willing to wait before finally sending Paul off on his great missionary journeys. God is not rushed. God is not worried. I'm tempted to be both as my voice is going away, but God is not rushed or worried. Pray for me. God is not rushed or worried. God accomplishes all his purposes perfectly on time. You can see this in the first two verses of our text. <coughs> but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. You already know that God deals differently with time than you do. We heard this from Peter in the scriptures when he warns us, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. It doesn't mean the time moves more slowly for God or more quickly, but it seems to mean that God exists in a way outside of time, although he can enter into it to interact with us. I often encounter people who have been married for more than 30 years or have worked the same job for maybe, say, 40 years. When I do, I usually tell them, I don't even know what 40 years means. I'm only 30 years old. It's a concept that it's not even possible for me to comprehend. And as I look out here, there is a certain rarity of gray hairs. We're grateful there is some. And so I can imagine that for most of you, you can say the same. 40 years, what does 40 years even mean? You know it only in theory. But remember, back when you were in high school or say middle school, how long did three years feel at that time? Three years is the difference between a sophomore in high school and a senior. Three years when you were in middle school or in high school is like an eternity. But when you become 30, 40, 50, or 60, three years just takes on a whole different shape. Even Methuselah's 969 years, the longest we know of anyone's ever living on this earth, when it's viewed from a God who exists above and outside of time, doesn't feel like a long time. It's what you could call a very short millennium <laughs> from God's perspective because he is outside of time and interacts with time differently than us. See, in a moment, how the Apostle Paul had to wait some 10 years from the time of his conversion to the time of great usefulness. And we think, poor Paul, that's a long time to wait. That is not a long time. <laughs> it depends on who you are. 10 years is forever to my five-year-old son who's not yet experienced 10 years, but to God, 10 years is like nothing. When Paul had to wait 10 years of preparation, three in Arabia and then some more, before his peak usefulness, God had already been waiting how long? 
how long had God been waiting from the time he planned Paul's peak usefulness to the time it came about? See in our text. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. This is just as Yahweh had set Jeremiah the prophet apart before his own birth. He told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So not only before birth, but before conception. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's what God did also with Paul. Or the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49 says this, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And then Yahweh told that servant, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was very much fulfilled, not only in Jesus, but also in the Apostle Paul. How long did God wait to call and then to commission and then to fulfill the commission of the Apostle Paul? Not 10 years. He waited forever. (laughs) It was according to his eternal decree In the most unhurried sort of manner, God, before Paul was born, before he was even formed in the womb, in eternity past, God had planned that Paul would in time become the apostle to the Gentiles and go out and bring this gospel and become broadly useful. Paul had to wait some 10 years. God waited forever and ever 10 years feels like forever to us, but that's because we're middle schoolers. We're high schoolers. How long had God been waiting? Longer than you can put nines on the screen of a calculator. All the way across, longer than that had God been waiting patiently for this moment to take place. He set Paul apart before the apostle was born, even though... As he says in Romans of another child like this, quote, he had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. If you feel impatient waiting upon God, let me assure you that God has been waiting upon you a lot longer than you have been waiting upon God. There is something for us to learn in the patience of God. You might be here today with a sort of restlessness within yourself. It could be for any number of reasons. Maybe you're having a midlife crisis or an early life or a late life crisis, a crisis of some sort where you're wondering, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing in life? Is this all that my life is going to be? Is there more? Is there something else? Maybe you feel stuck in a season. You're looking for a change of circumstance. You have young children in the home and other dreams you had are put on the side and you wonder, is this just what my life is? Remember the God we sing of as unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. God is not hurried in his purposes, but he has definite purposes. You will never outweigh God. God is the best of all waiters. We sing that his purposes will ripen fast, but fast is a relative term. (laughs) There were 300 years before the last promise of Christ's coming and Christ's coming to the earth. You and I are tempted when God does not act quickly in our lives. When the promise God makes and the fulfillment of it are so far separated, we are tempted to think, 
Maybe God doesn't want to act at all. Think about how many wasted years there were for Saul of Tarsus. If Paul would become so valuable and his missionary journeys would take place and bring the gospel to the whole known world within the span of just a few years, imagine if he had come to Christ as a child. Imagine if he'd had even decades before to be doing the same work. How much more God could have done? Did God not care? When Saul of Tarsus was growing up seeking a righteousness through the law but unable to attain it, did God not care when Saul of Tarsus' great zeal bubbled over from the kettle and spilled scalding water upon the church of God and led to deaths of even those who followed Jesus? Did God not care? Do not be tempted to interpret God's delay as God's disinterest. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. If God had set Paul apart from before he was born but waited so long for Paul to be born and then waited so long after he was born to call him effectually to salvation, the temptation is to think that God doesn't care. But Paul adds, he called me by his grace. When did that grace appear? When was that grace born in the heart of God? Not the moment Paul came to Christ. That grace had been stewing in the heart of God. It was his good pleasure that had been there, stewing in the heart of God for an eternity. In eternity past. It is what fueled God's purpose when he looked forward and knew, I will call the apostle Paul. He will be saved on the way to Damascus and he will take my gospel to the nations. That was grace back then. And it was the appearance of that grace. He called me by his grace. It appeared. And that is meant to dispel for anyone here, if you are a believer, the thought that if God is not immediately intervening right now in your life, fixing the problem, even doing something good that you're desiring of him, saving some lost friend or family member, or helping you become increasingly useful as a Christian, is to dispel the notion that that's because God doesn't care. God does care. But God is patient, and God is willing to wait in a way that you and I simply are not willing to wait. It even says in our text that when he did call Paul, God, quote, was pleased to reveal his son to him. This was not a last-minute audible. This was according to God's eternal, gracious, good, pleased, good pleasure, his pleased purpose. Satan will often come and try to convince you that if God's not intervening in an evident way right now or within the time frame that you happen to think reasonable, then that means that God doesn't care. But God's delay is not God's disinterest. Those are as far apart as the ends of Satan's forked tongue as he tries to tell you that. God is interested in us. He just doesn't always act immediately or according to our timeline. You think of the book of Job, how many chapters Job suffered through, wrongly accused, having lost everything. Did God not care? Why didn't God intervene in chapter 22? Why does it go on so long? And yet, James, looking back on Job, says this, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. What was God's purpose in Job's long suffering? 
how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face, but sometimes it's very far behind God's frowning providence. But it is always there. And the only reason that God's delay seems like forever to us is because we're all high schoolers at heart. And we would like him to intervene sooner rather than later. But even in Paul's life, see how long God was willing to wait before converting and commissioning Paul. A whole eternity. (laughs) That leads us now to the second part of our passage, which is, There is God willing to wait in heaven. Let's come now to the man Paul, a man just like you and me. How long did Paul have to wait between the time of his conversion and the time when he was really deeply useful, the way we read of him in the book of Acts? In time, we read in our passage, God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And immediately you think, I know what that means because when I read the book of Acts, that's what Paul is doing that whole book. That's not true. Not the first 10 chapters. It actually takes you quite a while to get to the apostle Paul doing that. Paul has three missionary journeys that make up the last two-thirds or so of the book of Acts. But there was a period of time before the missionary journeys. You're reading the highlights of the peak of his ministry, but that's not the way that Paul experienced it. And you see that here in our very passage, verses 16 and 17. He tells us what happens immediately after he's converted. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18 will start, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. So we don't know how long he was in Arabia, but this whole period of time altogether is three years. So probably he was there for three years. You don't think much about that because... It only takes you about one second to read about three years. (laughs) The first missionary journey probably didn't begin until several years after that. Because after he returned to Damascus, he was let out a window of the wall, if you remember, in a basket. He escapes. He goes briefly to Jerusalem. Everybody's scared of him. They send him away to Tarsus, his hometown. And we don't hear about Paul again until Barnabas goes up to fetch him, to try to find him wherever he is in Tarsus, to take him to Antioch. And it is from Antioch that he's commissioned for his first missionary journey. Now, we can read that in a few minutes. Paul had to live year after year prior to great usefulness. This is the way that the Bible works, and it's good for you to be aware of this as you're reading it because we can often trick ourselves. Scripture does not trick us, but we do often trick ourselves in reading it. We read the story of Moses, and it feels to us as if Moses being drawn out of the Nile River as a baby and Moses leading his people through dry land of the Red Sea is just, you know, several pages apart. So it feels like there's not a large elapsing of time. But do you know how long there was between him coming out of the Nile River and him leading God's people through the Red Sea? 80 years. So you don't know, and I don't know, what 80 years means. And 40 of those years he spent watching sheep out in the desert 
of Arabia, most likely, probably the same sort of location that Paul's talking about in our text. 40 years with sheep. Is that the Moses that you think of when you think of Moses? No, you think of this brief last period of his life where he did amazing things. But that wasn't how he lived it. That's not how his life played out. Or think again about Joseph in the Old Testament. We love to think of Joseph, second in command of all of Egypt, saving the whole known world from a famine. However, do you know how long there was between the time when Joseph was a teenager telling his brothers about his dreams? Then he gets sold as a slave, gets thrown into prison, and then finally tells Pharaoh about his dream and that raises him up to second in command and he saves the world? How long apart were these two things? We don't know exactly, but it seems like 13 years. 13 years. So take your age right now and add 13 years to it, and maybe that's when God wants to really deeply, broadly use you. <laughs> maybe you need to be prepared for 13 years. It's hard to imagine that. Yet that's the way it works in Scripture. For Paul, it was this way. He's converted dramatically on his way to Damascus. Paul later tells us that there he was on the ground. Christ has been revealed to him. His whole life's turned upside down. And he hears these words from Jesus. Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me, and to, in, to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's calling on the way to Damascus to be a Christian coincided for him with his clear commission of what he was to do. It doesn't always work that way for us. You're gifted when you come to Christ, but it's often, there's often a period of discovery where you're trying to figure out how am I gifted and how can I use my gifts best? But it wasn't that way for Paul. The moment he was converted, Christ told him clearly, this is what I'm giving you as your work in this life, to go to the Gentiles and tell them the gospel. There's no doubt that Paul got to work right away. He was commissioned, so I don't imagine he just twiddled his thumbs and waited 10 years and then started preaching the gospel, even if we don't have an account of him doing so very much before. We do know he started preaching there in Damascus. Even here, when he goes away into Arabia in our text, he was probably preaching the gospel in Arabia. Arabia just so that you know, if you're looking at a map, it, is, it was really the kingdom of Nabatea, Nabataean kingdom. It was just east of Palestine and then south down into the, what we call the Arabian Peninsula or the Sinai Peninsula down south. This whole region, it was a large region, very desertous. That whole region was known as Arabia. It was ruled by a king, Aretas IV. That's where Paul goes. But we know nothing about what Paul does except by inference. And here's an inference we make about what he did in 2 Corinthians 11. 
Paul says, at Damascus, so when he came back from Arabia, the governor under King Aretas, that's the king of Arabia, the king of the Nabataeans, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, if Paul had gone to Arabia for three years and minded his own business and maybe just had more revelations from Jesus and read the Bible, but didn't proclaim the gospel, I highly doubt King Aretas would want him killed or arrested at least. So probably he went there and was proclaiming the gospel. So Paul was being obedient to the heavenly vision, but there's an important point to be made. Although Paul started preaching right away, you do not have in your New Testament a letter to the Nabataeans. You do not have a letter to the Arabians. We never anywhere read of or hear of a church of the Nabataeans like you do of the Galatians. We're making an argument from silence. Maybe there was one. However, Luke, who accompanied Paul and wrote the book of Acts, surely he knew about this early formative period of Paul's life. And with all the data that he had of that period of time, Luke made the decision, there's nothing here worth recording for anybody. <laughs> so we know nothing of that period of time. Most likely, Paul did not encounter a great degree of success like he would later on. It doesn't seem that he planted any churches when he was three years in Arabia, even though he was preaching and experiencing some degree of persecution. We don't have evidences of great success any time before the first missionary journey 10 years later. That's why scholars like to refer to this first period of Paul's life, including three years in Arabia, as the silent years. They're the silent years, a decade of Paul's life. We want to know exactly what happened. What did he face? What did he do? Silence. I don't know what he did. You don't know what he did in Arabia. He did something. But it doesn't seem he was highly successful in his commission to make Christians of the Gentiles there. But in God's purposes, God didn't mind waiting three years for Paul to be in Arabia and more years after that before peak usefulness. You and I, we don't like this Arabian business. Let's be honest. We don't like the long period of waiting between what we believe God wants our life to be, waiting for it to become that. <laughs> period of preparation, which mostly takes place through suffering and failure. That's how you grow. But we're not big fans of this. We don't like that there was 10 years in between Paul's conversion and his real clear usefulness. But very often, this is just how the Christian life works. For most useful Christians, before there is great usefulness, there is a, lot, a long period of waiting and suffering and being disappointed. <laughs> if you don't believe me, you could go read just about any biography of a Christian whom you would consider very useful. It's always been the case. We read in the scriptures, in the Psalms, and we pray, wait on the Lord. And we say, God, we are waiting on you. But when we say that, I think we're more thinking, we're, we're waiting a few days on you. <laughs> but it's not that way in the lives of God's people. Think of the greatest psalmist, David, when he prayed that, God, my soul waits for you. 
You know that David was anointed to be the king before his brothers and his father by Samuel himself. And then he proceeded to spend years running away from a murderous Saul who wanted him killed for no good reason. And he was hiding in caves, very unkinglike for someone who was promised to be the king. Do you know how long there was between when Samuel said, you are the king of Israel, and when David could actually come out of caves and be the king of Israel? Probably something like a decade. So there is David hiding in a cave, dark, dank, not what he anticipated his life to be. And he prays, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. That is biblical waiting. It's not a waiting of a day or of a week. Oftentimes, the waiting on the Lord that we are called to do is the waiting of a decade or more than a decade. It's not a very exciting sermon, is it? <laughs> but that's what's taught in the scriptures. I say this not to discourage anyone because God can do anything he wants at any point. And there are oddities where for some Christians there's immense usefulness right away. Hooray! But I say this because the regular experience of God's people through all time has been. You come to Christ and there's a period of being prepared. You get right to work. It's not an excuse for laziness. You take the next steps of obedience, but then you don't find immediate success. And your temptation will be to lose heart. But scripture says to you, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. And Paul's silent years exist. His three years in Arabia are there so that you don't give up. Because when you don't see immediate success, even in a task that God has clearly called you to, it could be just that God is growing your patience. We love the stories of great Christians like the missionary Adoniram Judson to Burma, such a difficult place to be an evangelist. And to this day in Myanmar, in that part of the world, Baptist churches celebrate every year Judson Day for Adoniram Judson. But there was no Judson Day when Adoniram arrived in Calcutta and went to Burma there in 1813 and started learning the language, which took him three years, sometimes 12 hours a day of language study. He did not see one baptized convert for six long, grueling, anguishing, painful years. And then from there even, the growth was rather slow. And today there are thousands and thousands and thousands of believers in that part of the world who can trace their lineage to Adoniram Judson. But he didn't know it. Not in those early years. That was his Arabia. We don't like Arabia. But God often has an Arabia for his people. And that's exactly what he had for Paul here. Look, I'm no son of the prophets and I can't predict the future here, but just by observation, it does appear to me when I look at our local church that we are in Arabia. It very much feels like we've had a rough couple of past years, just like everybody else has, and more so, I suppose, and we are regaining our footing and we're getting back and we're looking around for, okay, how are we going to now explode? How are we going to now really grow, develop? And there is a sort of restless excitement. I hope we always preserve that. We need to have that. What I don't want anyone to feel is a losing of heart, 
if this kind of success and excitement that we're looking forward to isn't an immediate thing. We have been seeing in this church lots of evidences of growth. If you look inwardly, I see people, especially as a pastor, I get to see people grow and move to the next stage of their Christian walk every single day. If you're looking externally, you've seen new faces. There's new miracle growth. Our men's ministry with Andrew has now been formalized. It's not what the women's ministry is because it took a long time. It's going to take time to get there. Our small groups are growing. They're multiplying into new small groups. So we are seeing growth, but it's slow. Our budget is not way in the green or way in the red. It's right in the middle. What I don't want is for anyone to lose heart. God has typically, at old time, given an Arabia, silent years to his people, their time of labor. There are times when there's no excuse for sitting back and doing nothing. It's when you press forward, like Paul, you go and proclaim the gospel so that King Aretas wants you killed. We have to be proclaiming the gospel. We have to doing, be doing all that is in our power to live holy lives, to reach others with the gospel, and to be faithful. And at any point, God could cause some sort of spark upon the gunpowder, some kind of explosion. But if I know the working of God well, it may be several years out. It may not be, but it may be. But that's okay. God has waited not several years for us to be broadly useful as a church in our community and to those around us. God has waited eternity. <laughs> He's not hurried and he's not rushed. He's patient. He's more patient than we are and we learn from him that. I hope this will not encourage in anyone a sort of sloth that says, well, I'll just wait for God to do what he's going to do. No. We are to be active and move forward, but I want us to see this period of this church's life as a driving of steel piles down into the ground to prepare for greater usefulness in the future. It was at a pastor's conference that one teacher said to young pastors, expect that you will accomplish much less in your new churches in five years and expect that you will accomplish much more in 50 years. This is what we expect of the Lord. If we're ever to be broadly useful, we will need to be deeply rooted first. And so we tarry with Paul and all the great saints of old in Arabia waiting for the time when the Spirit himself calls us to greater usefulness, content in the meantime, growing, developing through trials and suffering. May God give us a heart of patience and contentment like that.